Hello listeners, my name is Casey, host of the Cult Vault podcast, a long-format interview-based show that focuses on cults, high-demand groups, captive organisations and more. Each week, I interview a different cult survivor who brings a story of coercion and exploitation along with their own fight for freedom. With nearly 200 survivor interviews from all over the world, you can also find deep dives into infamous cults, interviews with leading experts in the field, and understand more about how cults exist all around us and none of us are safe. Each month, I feature a different author on the show who has penned a compelling memoir about their cult experiences, which we discuss at length on the show, with copies of their books available to listeners. You will never be short of insightful and moving content here at the Cult Vault Podcast, available on all major platforms. Welcome back, everyone. This is your host, Ryan Anthony Hernandez. And for today's episode, we have a special guest. Her name is Diane Halfman. Uh, just to give a little background, uh, she used to be an undercover police officer uh, helping to capture those who were involved in human trafficking uh, back in the 90s. And you might be wondering, uh, why is Ryan Anthony Hernandez not talking about cults today? Um, one thing that I, I want to do with this podcast is, yes, talk about cults, but also talk about different angles of trauma and different angles of healing. And yes, it's it is new for me to talk about human trafficking, but it is something that is happening. It is something that I think people should be aware of. And I think Diane's message of being resilient and um you you'll you'll hear her message as as you listen to both episodes but i think that it's it's capturing the ability to to heal in whatever anger uh angle or form i think that that's what i want to capture in my podcast particularly for you know abuse uh cult tactics religious abuse that is what I want to capture in this podcast. And I think that having Diane Halfman on the show will hopefully resonate with some of the audience and, you know, bring some kind of hope to to someone out there. So, so I, I just wanted to bring that up before we actually even start with the podcast. That yes, I I do talk about cults, but there will be other issues to be brought up as I continue my journey as a podcaster. And for those of you who have been with me along the journey, thank you so much for all your support. And I will continue my best to uh, bring more episodes to my listeners. So without further ado, here is the interview with Diane Halfman. Welcome back, everyone. We are you are listening to the Truth That Heals podcast today. I have a special guest. Her name is Diane Halfman. She is a inspirational woman, a podcaster whom I've uh, worked with previously, and it is such an honor to have you on the show. Welcome, uh, Diane. How are you doing? 
I'm doing well. Thanks, Ryan. Happy to be here with you. Now, thank you for coming. Um, I don't know if my audience knows you or if they've uh, come across your work. Uh, can you share with us a little bit about who you were before the podcast started? Yeah, happy to. I, you know, I came from a middle-class family, uh, Roman Catholic uh, faith. I did 12 years of Catholic school and uh, led a pretty sheltered life. And so, you know, I was married and had uh, two children. I now have four grandchildren. And, you know, I didn't grow up thinking I was going to be a police officer. I actually thought that uh, I was going to be an attorney only because when I went to college, my father said, you know, are you going to be a doctor or an attorney? As if those were my only two choices because he wanted me to be successful in life. And so I thought, well, I don't want to be a doctor, but I'm kind of interested in law. So that's why uh, I pursued a degree in law. And as I was finishing my senior year, I got a degree in criminal justice and decided that I didn't want to be an attorney, that I didn't want a job that I was inside. And it seemed very tedious to do that kind of work. And uh, I had people who were graduating with me, a lot of the guys that were going into law enforcement with uh, San Diego PD, and they encouraged me to take the tests, which I did. And so I, I scored well on that. And, you know, by the time I took the test, I was Three months later, I was on the department. So it was one of those kind of whirlwind things. And uh, I always believe that we're, we're guided in, in our next steps that really help us uh, to do the work we're here to do. So it sounds like from a very young age, you already had this desire to be of service, whether it was through, through, be, uh, through the law or uh, by being a doctor. Was there ever uh, an influential person who kind of, um, I guess, directed you or inspired you to be of service to people? Yeah, I would say, you know, uh, several people, you know, I was really fortunate to have very positive people in my life. You know, my parents uh, were really a big influence and I got to see a really big spectrum of life. My mother came from a very wealthy family that uh, she was very humble and downplayed that. And my father came from a farm in Indiana, a very poor family, the youngest of eight children. And so, you know, they came together because my dad had joined the Navy. And when he came out to San Diego, my grandmother, who was widowed at the time, felt that no one should be alone at the holidays. So she had uh, called down to the Navy office and said if anyone was going to be alone for the holidays, that uh, they could come to their home uh, for Thanksgiving dinner. And my dad was chosen as one of those people. And that's how my parents met. And uh, they were pen pals for about a year before they started dating and uh, had gotten together. So, you know, it's kind of this uh, cool story of, you know, uh, people from different aspects of life of how they can come together. And my dad uh, was, you know, a hard worker, became uh, worked for the federal government for 43 years. Um, you know, my mother, even though she stayed home for most of the time, she uh, was always in entrepreneurial and was involved in real estate as well as she uh, owned a deli for the eight years that myself and my siblings went to college um, to help pay for that. So, you know, there was always that family support and that inspiration is that um, our family motto was faith, family, and friends. And that with faith, you could do anything. Family was important. You would do anything and to keep a close knit of friends together. So I had that inspiration that was um, really, really amazing. And then another inspirational person was uh, and actually a, a football player who was the place kicker for the San Diego Chargers. His name uh, is Rolf Bernerska. 
And at the time, he had gone through um, a really challenging illness and was thought that he would never play professional sports again. And during that transition, he actually came back and uh, was able to play, and it was really inspirational. And, you know, I was a young girl at the time. Uh, I was like 15, and I, I had met him, and, uh, you know, I, I actually helped him put together um, some scrapbooks of his journey, and I got to know him, and it was just a very inspirational thing for me. Um, to learn about his journey, to be able to be around when that happened. And it just um, really stuck with me throughout my life because one of his favorite quotes was that, you know, uh, to don't pray for them, for there not to be a mountain, but to have the strength to tackle a mountain. And I don't know the exact um, phrasing of that, but it basically was any, any challenge that you uh, are faced with that God, you know, pray for God to give you the strength to get around it. And I always kept that with me throughout my life with any challenges that I had, that I always looked at things that, uh, any challenges that, that came in front of me, that it was happening for me. And I just had to look for what was the lesson, you know, if I had to go through challenging times, that it was only because I needed that skill set to help other people get through challenging times. So it's a more of, of the uh, orientation of how you look at things that no matter what kind of of victim experience you may have, we get to choose whether or not we label ourselves as a victim or we choose to be a victor and learn from it. Wow. Um, it's it's very different hearing your perspective because on this podcast, I really enjoy hearing so many different uh, views and your view of you know family support is I think something very fresh. Um, I personally, I personally, uh, do talk a little bit about it uh, on my personal podcast uh, because on my healing journey, the ones who rescued me were actually my mom and dad because they believed in me. And although we did have our difficulties, they always showed their support. Um, and did that support, did that give you courage to tackle these mountains or did you find support uh, from other places as well? Um, I think all the above. I, you know, one of the things, one of my friends who did not have a very fortunate, you know, family life and, uh, you know, she didn't have parents that were supportive and to, to be able to have that. And one of the things that she had shared with me was she said, one of the things that you're fortunate to have is that you always have a safety net, that no matter what happens, you, your family is there um, for you and not everyone actually has that. And so one of the things that, you know, I've talked about with my friends is that if you don't have that in your immediate family, you can have a created family that, you know, it's not about having hundreds of friends. It's about having one or two that you can call on. I've, I've got friends, we call that your 2 a.m. friend, that if something happens, it's challenging. Who's that friend you can call at 2 a.m. and that will be there for you, that will answer that phone and, and be there for you. So we can create our own family as well. If it didn't happen in our family of origin, it's up to us as adults to be able to go, who is my family of that I'm creating for myself? Who are those trusted people? Because, you know, as humans, uh, you know, we're meant to be social creatures. We're meant to be connected to other people. And, you know, I have a, a friend of mine who um, I thought it was really wonderful where she said, you know, trust is not something that you give someone, you know, because we can all be let down. We, people can break our trust. A lot of things can happen. Trust is something that you choose. 
and you choose to trust someone and you know there's going to be failures there's going to be breakdowns that's just part of the human experience but when we choose uh trust when we choose the people who are close to us it allows ourselves to expand and grow and not be stuck in what happens in the past because we can't do anything about the past all we can do is look at what's possible what can we learn from it and what we can move you know from that and having some trusted people around us um, really makes a difference. I really like how you brought up you brought up choice where a person can choose and you know to be creative and make their own family uh, because sometimes our our biological families unfortunately are are not uh, as supportive, but like you said, we can be creative and choose. Um, for those who are in this difficult situation, um, where they don't have the support of their families and they're trying to choose, uh, what advice can you give them when it comes to discernment? Because it really does take discernment to choose who you're going to trust. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I believe, you know, we all have discernment within us. It's just a matter of whether or not we trust our own uh, discernment or not. And so I think that a good place to start when it comes to discernment is to think of a time where you had um, some internal knowing, right? Because there is a difference between knowledge, all the book smart out in the world, and then there's your knowing within yourself. And if you can pick just one time in your life where you knew something and you know you were able to rely on that, that gives you the foundation that you've been able to trust yourself at one point. And, you know, even if you didn't listen to it and let's say that, you know, you got caught in, in an unfortunate circumstance, but that you remember where something within you was like, oh, I shouldn't move forward, or maybe that's not a good idea, or, you know, oh, I should listen to this, or, you know, this is for my, my good, right? Even if we didn't listen to that advice, we felt it within ourselves. We, we felt that happening within ourself. Um, and so when we actually have that experience, that is our indicator to know that our discernment actually works, that we have to just take the time to listen to it. And, you know, discernment builds by giving yourself that silent time, whether you're someone who prays or meditates, you know, just being in silence is enough, right? You, there doesn't have to be a formal, you know, words or anything in that. But if we can just take the time, even just a few moments to be in silence and listen to what our inner knowing is, some people call that God, they call it discernment, they call it intuition, whatever that is, we all have that within ourselves, And it's only about just fine-tuning it like when you work out and you're building a muscle you can build your intuitive muscle and you know take time no matter where you're at to just be able to feel and use all of your senses so many times we rely on just uh, our vision or what someone tells us but we have a lot of different senses and you know one of the things that i teach people to um to get to learn about their own uh surroundings and to build up that intuitive knowing is um there's an exercise where in your home, like to know like every inch of your home and you can do this like, you know, literally closing your eyes and feeling, how do you feel in a room? Do you feel comfort, comfort in a room? Do you feel like at ease in a room or does something trigger you in a room? And then open your eyes and see what inspires you in that room or what maybe triggers you in that room. And so we start 
feeling around us about what the environment is responding to us. And then you kind of build this relationship with it. And the more we do things like that, where we see how we feel in a space, we can start trusting our intuition. We can start then leading with that and making decisions from that place. And it's the same thing with people. You know, when you're with people, we know like if the you know hair on the back of our head stands up that we don't feel comfortable around someone. It doesn't matter what the reasons are with that. Just you notice that and you you trust yourself that your body is there to protect you, that your your mind, everything about you is to alert you and to protect you in your environments. And the more we listen to that, the more we are choosing people that we want to spend time with. So the, it also works when we're around people and, you know, we don't even really know we can meet someone one time and they feel like family. Like they feel like really comfortable. It feels like you can trust them. It feels like you can lean in. And so when we trust that and we start having an experience with them, we start then noticing what that looks like. Now that's very different than somebody who, you know, is falsely trying to be your friend or trying to manipulate you or, or, you know, get your, gain your trust because they want something from you. We also can learn to recognize when someone is being true and to listen to what that actually is. So we have to really uh, have the experience in life where we lean into it and then see, is this something that we continue to move forward or is this a situation where we step back and in really learning that and knowing that, you know, we're not always going to hundred percent make the right decision, but the more we listen to that, the more we're making better decisions as we go. Well, thank you uh, so much for sharing about that because I think so many people in this world have gone through traumas or, you know, just life in general. And unfortunately many people lose trust in themselves to make uh, life decisions, and then they become paralyzed, or you can say stagnant. And uh, what you're what you are sharing right now, I think builds up the idea that a person can trust themselves to make decisions, uh, decisions that they will learn from they will have, they will, you know, either see a positive or a negative. But the important thing is that they see the power of trusting themselves and stepping forward because once you're paralyzed it, it it's it's so hard to move in life to move forward or you know to to be creative and going back to this mountain because all of us in life have this mountain that we either are going to tackle or we just avoid it and don't even do anything about it but you saw this mountain you know of you know, to be a police officer and you tackled it. And when you tackled it, uh, what did you experience? What were the things that you saw as a police officer? Well, you know, there's, there's definitely a lot of things um, that were to, to be seen for sure. And, you know, when you were talking about, um, you know, people being paralyzed by a step that they take, uh, one of my favorite quotes is by Clement Watt and it's take the first step no more, no less, and the next step will be revealed. So many times we think an all or nothing where we stay in a paralyzed state 
or we see where we want to go in the future as a result, but we don't know how to get there. And we don't necessarily need to know the how, we just need to take one step. And in taking that one step, the next step will be revealed to us. We'll either know, hey, maybe I need to take a step back and evaluate. Maybe I go right, maybe I go left. But it's only in taking that first step forward, it allows us to then see new information and make decisions from there. So it's about making those incremental steps uh, in going forward that allows us to break free from that that paralysis that happens. Um, with the police department, I had a lot of, of you know, different circumstances that, you know, I, I could have never predicted that, you know, were presented to me. I mean, when I worked uh, uniform patrol, you know, I worked, you know, 911, right? So, you know, all day long, you know, 12 to 14 hours, it was everyone else's crisis. So, you know, whether there was, you know, a murder, a rape, a, a car crash, you know, something involving children. I mean, there's so many different things. And, you know, when you have that much, um, crisis and tragedy that happens in a day you have to be able to manage that as you as you go through so that you can have the strength to continue on with that and so you as a police officer tend to learn to compartmentalize where you can kind of put that aside so that you can have the energy to move to the next thing um, but it is important to be able to um, have some strategies in your life where you are doing recovery. For me, it was going to the gym and working out because I felt like by keeping my body strong, it could keep my mind strong. Um, having a close relationship with God and, and just praying for safety for myself to be able to come home to my children, um, to be able to have good impacts in my community, you know, that was a, a foundation that I had. And that goes back to the, the foundation of faith within my family. And then, you know, I worked uh, undercover uh, as a prostitute because we were hunting a serial killer. Uh, and there was, at the time, there was a, a serial killer, the Green River Killer, who had killed 70 women, and 20 of them were in San Diego. And he was actually being captured through undercover prostitution, uh, what, you know, gave some of the clues in order for uh, him to be apprehended. Uh, but then there were, there's always copycat killers. And so, you know, we were doing some of, of these things to be able to uh, not necessarily look at who was sleeping with who, uh, but because I was arresting like 34 men a night, it was about putting them in a time and place because of the other crimes that are associated with that, whether that's human trafficking, whether it's robbery, you know, if you can put someone in a time and place and then other things are happening because of, of what is surrounded with, with prostitution. And we weren't necessarily using the words human trafficking back when I was a police officer, it was associated crimes and what those things look like. And so when you start looking at those things, um, you know, those have an accumulative effect. Uh, even when I was working, you know, gangs at the time, uh, gang members were coming down from LA. There were some conflicts in San Diego. This was back in the nineties, uh, where we had, you know, the get down series where people were using AK 47s in grocery stores, um, to cause fear. And, you know, when the different gangs were, at odds with each other, you know, usually someone would end up dead each night on each side of the gang. Uh, so there was there was a lot of, uh, you know, terror that was around that, you know, people not feeling safe in their neighborhood and, uh, you know, really using some, you know, getting to know the community members in the areas that we worked uh, to help them in, in their perspectives and what they were looking at. So, you know, a lot of the mountains were being uh, confronted with 
you know, unexpected violence, right? Of, of just not knowing, um, you know, what would be happening next uh, to know the feeling of being shot at. You know, there's, you can't replace anything to know when a bullet has whizzed by and you hear that in your ear to know that it was that close and the type of, of circumstances that happened with that. And I think anytime you are dealing with ongoing trauma, that you have to have some of those uh, skills, you have to develop those skills to have uh, the recovery after that so that you can, you know, stay whole within, uh, within your being, within your soul to be able to go on the next day to face the next day's challenges. Wow. I mean, I didn't know that you went through all of those experiences because that can be very, um, that can be very scary. I know I know there are better words, but it's very scary to have your life being, you know, so many people after you and, you know, so many people hating you and there you are trying to protect. And you did mention something that I I felt is uh, very important for today's time. Uh, and that was the human trafficking. Um, we know that it's it's still going on, that a lot of uh, women and men are being trafficked and used. At that time, I know you were you know, you were trying to catch uh, the bad guys, of course. But for the women, uh, was there any sort of uh, uh, department that would help them in recovery, or would would help them in in finding a better way to living their life, or or from leaving that that whole trafficking thing? Yeah, you know, um, there was a lot of like outside agencies, you know, that we could refer to. We weren't necessarily doing that within the police department. We didn't necessarily have the scope at the time to uh, differentiate between uh, prostitution, which was uh, considered a crime, even though it was a misdemeanor, to look at the the depths of, you know, the kidnapping involved with that, the, you know, crimes against the prostitutes, the ones that were coerced in a way that, you know, not understanding the depth of, you know, boyfriending uh, women in, right? Because a lot of these pimps would pose as a, a boyfriend to them, show them, you know, uh, you know, treat them well, which they maybe didn't have in their life, that their home situation in a lot of ways were, was worse because um, sometimes they were trafficked by their parents, right? And so a lot of people can't wrap their head around what was the background that some of these girls came from, that running away and finding a, you know, boyfriend that was really their pimp, uh, that they were willing to do things for them because of how they positioned that in, you know, the ways that they were taken advantage of in that you know, way. So I remember talking to some of them who were very young at the time, and it was very difficult to have them, you know, turn in their pimp because one, they were fear of being beat up. They were fear of sometimes they would threaten, uh, you know, their friends or other family members. And there were a, a depth of things that um, we just didn't even know to ask at that time, you know, at least in the, in the role that I was doing, I think that there were, you know, some task force that uh, were looking at some of that at the time, but that wasn't our scope. Um, but there was some uh, private, uh, you know, groups that were there that we could refer them to so that they did have someone to talk to that there, there was ways 
um, for them to do something different. But if that's all you know, you don't necessarily, it's scary that even though that is a, uh, a lifestyle that they don't want, it can also feel more scary to be sent back home to how am I as a teenager going to take care of myself? You know, what am I gonna do differently? So, you know, now there are some, uh, you know, things like Generate Hope is, is a really great foundation here in San Diego where they have homes that they do like, you know, two and three year programs for these, you know, women to start changing the way they outlook in life, to start building trust within themselves, to start building that they can do something different than this, that it's not just a, you know, weekend somewhere. It, it's really changing how they out their outlook on life and having, you know, the resources to look at it much differently. So it's a much bigger problem. And I think the more that, that people look at that, you know, this is something that happens in, in, all schools this happens in all neighborhoods that it's not just limited to a foreign country right that these are mm -hmm. things that happen you know in our own country and when we realize this and have the knowing of this then we can help actually break the the cycle of these things happening now did you personally arrest any of these these pimps or these serial killers so I wasn't, I was part of the, the undercover team. I didn't personally uh, arrest the serial killer. Um, I was part of the team that arrested uh, some of the pimps uh, that happened in that. I primarily arrested the Johns, the, those who are soliciting. You know, if there wasn't those that are soliciting, it's just the typical, you know, sales of, of supply and demand, right? If there wasn't the demand, then, uh, you know, the, the, it would affect the supply. So I, I affected the, the end of those that were soliciting the prostitutes. Uh, at the time, those were things that we were actually uh, doing arrest on as a way of, of deterring being part of that culture and supporting that culture. Because if you don't have people that are actually wanting that, then you know there isn't such a big push for the supply of that. So we have to kind of hit it at at multiple angles uh, because it's not just one side. You know, it's like, oh, let's get rid of all the the prostitutes. Well, you know, who wants the prostitutes, right? Who is buying for them, and, and what are things happening with that? And so, you know, when we start looking at, you know, human trafficking is the largest. Uh, illegal commodity in the world today. It is one of the reasons why, you know, um, professional uh, criminal organizations, whether it be gangs or mobs or any of those things, are doing that because it is more money than guns, more than drugs, you know, any other type of illegal trade because a human can be sold over and over again. So if we don't start looking at this is a billion dollar industry that if we don't start exposing those type of companies that have like the shell companies that you know are supporting these things that we don't necessarily realize what are the companies that are actually benefiting from all of this we have to start really looking deeper and be investigative of who are the type of organizations that we're supporting that is allowing these type of um, behaviors and taking advantage of, of young children so from your whole experience as a police officer and seeing all the things that you saw, uh, when you finally left that, uh, that career, uh, what is something that you really, uh, what was your mindset afterwards? Like, what was your, your ideology? What were your emotions? Well, when I, uh, I actually had a training accident, so it took me a while. I, I shattered my my gun hand, and I both I had broke all the bones in my hand. So I had a recovery 
period in that. And during that time, my last case was, I was the liaison between the police department and a friend of mine that lived a mile from my home whose daughter was kidnapped and subsequently killed. And this uh, kidnapping murder case was very big in, in San Diego. And we were part of a very large volunteer group to find her, which, which happened. Uh, but it was the first time that I was directly involved with a child case where I knew the child. And, you know, it was one of those things that my daughters were very young at the time. And, you know, between the, the case itself and, you know, the year of, of trial and things that happened with that, you know, at the end of that, when I actually had retired from it, I took some time away to really start realizing that I had adrenal fatigue that came from just the type of life where you're constantly start, go, start, go. And, and you like, you know, you can do some boring reports and writing them out and then you're in a police chase right and you're sitting in your car and then you're on a foot pursuit right and there's just so much that affects your mind body and soul in in the work that i really started looking at how i could look at my life differently how can i restore um and really come back to uh a harmony within myself so that i could heal myself and be able to uh you know i believe that in giving we have to give from the overflow Right. You know, so many times people give from a, a deficit where they're not in a place to give. We have to build ourselves up, you know, mentally, emotionally, physically, all of those things so that we can give from an overflow and be able to really be present to help people. And so my transition was about creating that. So you mentioned you mentioned right now healing, uh, building up oneself harmony all of these are i think beautiful things which all of us can can aspire for especially those who uh, might feel that they're in a position in life which is very difficult um and i would love to hear more about that but for our audience they're gonna have to wait for our next episode where we're, we're going to dive more into what it is that diane does because you do uh, amazing things. Can you briefly share with us what it is that you are doing today? Yeah, Ryan. So I transitioned into, in that last case, in part of that restoration journey, I it came to me the term uh, spa life. And I had no idea at the time what that was going to, what that impact was going to be in my life. Uh, I had actually was working with a mentor and uh, he had asked me, he's like, if you could be doing anything uh, with your time and your resources, what it would be. And I said that I would be living the spa life. And that wasn't about just getting a massage. It was about creating a life on all different levels. So we can talk about in the next episode about what spa life means and how I utilize that not only for myself, but for my clients and how they choose to live their life and to stand in their power. Thank you so much, Diane. And in our next episode, we look forward to hearing more about the spa life. So that's it for today. You are listening to the Truth That Heals podcast with me, the host, Ryan Hernandez, and our guest, Diane Halfman.